Um, and if you want to get a debate going with the youth, then the simplest way to do it, to get hounded from all sides, is to just ask one simple question. Is it football or is it soccer? That's the question. And you'll, you'll just get absolutely hounded. So there's those who think it's soccer, those who think it's football, and there's those that just roll their eyes like, oh, here we go again, what's this, what's this about? No one really cares. <laughs> but today we see Jesus um, being hounded by uh, all sides. And actually we've seen that for the past few weeks, haven't we? As we've looked in the, the Gospel of Mark, he's been hounded by different groups of people. And we're gonna look in chapter 12 at Jesus being asked three questions today. Two of them were to trap him, and one was looking for a good answer. But what's really remarkable about each case is that the answer Jesus gives, and the question which that raises uh, for the listeners, and also for us today. So we heard a, a parable last week about the tenants trying to kill the heir of the vineyards. And knowing that Jesus was speaking about them, many of the religious leaders are ironically trying to fulfill this parable and trying to kill Jesus. And they're trying to do that firstly by setting up a political trap for him. So his first point is whose image? Now we all know that there's few things that get people riled up or cause division more than questions about money or paying taxes. And this is the subject that Jesus' enemies try to choose to trap Jesus once and for all in this first question. And especially for the Jews in first century Palestine, talking about tax was like the Brits talking about weather. They talk about it all the time, especially when it's raining or has just been raining. Um, but anyway, the Jews, they hated the tax in Jesus' time because they were living in the land that God had promised them only to have the Romans ruling over them. And now they were expected to pay tax to Caesar, this foreign king. So taxation was an issue where feelings ran very high. And we've seen previously that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders have tried to trap Jesus, and they failed. So now in verse 13, they've sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now this is an unusual coalition of people that have come to, to Jesus. And um, maybe they think that that's gonna be a good trap. But on one side, we have the Pharisees who live in strict obedience to the Jewish law and who are opposed strongly to the Roman rule. And then we have the Herodians who are only in power because of the Romans. They've been put there because of Rome. And so therefore, they're completely loyal to Caesar. And I wonder if the Pharisees have invited them along so that they could be witnesses against Jesus to the Romans. And also in the background, listening are the zealots. They don't believe that taxes should be paid at all, and they really want to get rid of the Romans. They're looking for, for a, a, a catalyst, something to set off the powder keg to cause um, trouble. All right, so um, going back to football or soccer, Imagine you're being approached by a Manchester City football fan and a Manchester United football fan, and then you're asked, which is the best team in Manchester? You can't win, can you? <laughs> you're going to get in trouble with one of them. Or by the CEO of Migro and the CEO of Co-op, and asked, which is the better supermarket? It's a no-win situation, isn't it? 
So then, which party will Jesus fall foul of? Is he going to get himself arrested or killed? The Pharisees will tell the crowd he's a traitor and call for his blood, or the Herodians will arrest him for treason and execute him. So verse 14, they want to set a trap in, in his words, so they start by doing this, by flattering Jesus. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, it's an interesting thing for your enemies to say to you, isn't it? That you, you, that you tell the truth all the time. But this is how they were going to try and trap him out. So they know Jesus is going to speak the truth no matter what. And actually, that's good for us because, you know, if even his enemies know that he's trustworthy, then we can trust in, in what he's saying. We can trust in, in what's true. And if you're not a Christian here today, then I want you to just look at this. You know, those who are trying to trap him, they know he's trustworthy. They know that he's going to tell the truth. And they're relying on that to trap him, to try and get him killed. So I wonder how long it took them to word this question in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? What a question. They think they're finally going to catch them out. So he gives them an object lesson. He tells them to get a coin. Now, of course, Jesus knew what a denarius looked like. He knew it was a silver coin worth a, a day's wage. And he also knew that it was used to pay the tax that they were talking about. So Jesus wants to make a point here in verse 16. He asks them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Verse 17, Jesus says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus says, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give what is due. Pay for what you've received, the fact that he looks after the roads. I mean, mainly it's probably going to his army or to his treasury, but for the things that he's given you, then you should, you should pay for that. Because he's the one whose inscription is on the coin. So it's, it's logical and practical, isn't it? You, do, do, uh, you go to work, you, you do the work, you pay your tax to the one who it's owed. The one whose image and inscription is on the coin, he's saying. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He carries on. And he says, give to God what is his due. Now, the second part of Jesus' answer is deeply profound. Both sides are silenced. They're amazed, and so they should be. They marvel at his answer, because against any other opponent, this trap would have likely worked. But not against Jesus. He managed to tell the truth and keep them happy. But they are faced with a question, aren't they? A much more important question from Jesus. What is owed to God? Whose image, whose inscription is on you? Genesis 1 verse 27 clearly tells us the answer to that question. We're made in the image of God. Jesus is asking in his reply, who do you belong to? Who does your life belong to? And what about the world around you and how you're living in it? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything and everyone belongs to him. So instead of being trapped by the question, Jesus has trapped them 
with their own question. He's exposed them for the greatest tax evasion that they are guilty of, of not paying God what we owe him. And when we come face to face with Jesus, he will know if we've given to him what we owe him. There's no trapping Jesus. We need to take this seriously because he knows the truth of our hearts and he will be truthful back to us. Now, as we move on to point two and the next question, it's interesting that this is also connected to monetary gain and wealth here. Question two is, uh, who's power? So the Sadducees at the time, they were like the aristocracy and they were very much about living affluently in this life. And partly we see it's because they didn't believe in the resurrection, verse 18. They want to live for the now. And also they're angry with Jesus because they are the ones who are in charge of the businesses in the temple. So many of which Jesus overturned in chapter 11 when he entered Jerusalem, which explains the tone of their question. They don't try and flatter Jesus, do they? They just come straight out with it. Now, um, the Sadducees were also very strict about the books of the Bible that they considered authoritative. They'd only accept the first five books. To them, even the Pharisees were too controversial. Okay? So the Sadducees were wealthy, and they didn't want doctrine getting in the way of their lifestyle. So they decide to come to Jesus with a question, and once again, Jesus' questioners set a trap for him. This time, it's not political, but a theological one. They set up this ridiculous hypothetical situation to say, how can the, the resurrection work? It just looks so daft, they say. And the Sadducees go back to Deuteronomy 25 and they, they come up with what they think is an unanswerable question about a wife who marries seven brothers in turn. And to answer it, Jesus will have to either hold on to the law of Moses and reject the resurrection or set aside Moses's law and hold hold on to the belief of resurrection. That's what they think they'll have to do. So again, it seems like Jesus is heading into a no-win situation again. There can't be a resurrection, they say, because Moses allows the wife of a man who dies to marry the dead man's brother. Now, this was normal practice at the time. It meant um, security. It provided security for the aging widow. A child of her own would be able to look after her as she got older. But the Sadducees do what many of us do when we come to a passage with preconceptions. They fit the Bible into their own belief system. So it backs up what they want to believe instead of coming to God's word and allowing it to change them. And because of that, they really think they're onto a winner here. There's no way anyone can answer this question. They think they're blinded from seeing it from any other angle. And what Jesus does in response is brilliant. Remember, the Sadducees, will only, uh, they only took note of the Pentateuch, the first five books. So if Moses didn't write it, they don't want to hear it. But where does Jesus take them to? Verse 26, to Exodus, to the life of Moses, and to the account of the burning bush. Jesus shows them that almighty God is the God of life. He doesn't say, Moses, I was the God of Abraham when he was alive, and now I'll be your God while you're alive, Moses, does he? He says, I am. 
Jesus tells them they're badly mistaken to not believe the resurrection. And Jesus uses a scripture that he knows they'll accept. Jesus shows them in his answer who God reveals himself to be, not how they have made him to be or would like him to be in their own minds. And not only that, but Jesus goes on in verse 24 to say that if you leave out the power of God, then things like the resurrection will look unbelievable. They think that the resurrection is a continuation of this life, whereas Jesus tells them that it's life on a whole other level. Verse 25. So once again, Jesus' opponents become trapped by their own trap. They worked out the kind of resurrection that they believed in, and their wrong assumptions of the spiritual world meant that they couldn't truly understand the resurrection, and they couldn't see who God was revealing himself to be. Exodus 3 verse 6 challenges their worldview. What will they do with that now their worldview's been challenged? Where will they go from there? Which again raises a question for us to answer, doesn't it? When it comes to life, are we working out our own worldview? Or are we trusting in God's word for our worldview? Will we understand the situation from how God puts it out for us? Or when it comes to our priorities, answers and meanings where will we go to will we will we go to our feelings or our friends opinions on facebook whose voices are we going to listen to so the sadducees came to show their bible knowledge and justify their earthly power but jesus shows their lack of bible knowledge and tells them it's about god's power shows them god's power and that brings us to a different kind of question the last question um, that Jesus gets answered, asked today, which is point three, who's love? Now, when we want an answer, uh, sorry, when we've got a question uh, that we want a concise answer for, like, where's the bathroom? Well, you walk to the back of there and then you open the door and go through the door, go out of the door, go down the stairs to the left. You know, you want a concise answer if you need the, the bathroom, don't you? You don't want someone stood there for 15 minutes explaining the simple uh, answer. Or how to use the coffee machine if you're desperate for coffee. You just want a simple answer, right? Well, here um, is a couple of concise uh, movie Movies. So this is a, a concise movie uh, answer summing up Lord of the Rings. Group spends nine hours returning jewellery. <laughs> if you want the, the, the whole trilogy summed up, there you go. Nine hours of returning jewellery. And then the next one. This is um, The Lion King. After losing his father, a young boy joins a hippie group and becomes a vegan. Interesting summary, isn't it? There was also one I haven't put up there. It was The Matrix, and it was um, friends decide to spend less time online. <laughs> but when when we want a clear answer, when we want a, uh, an answer, we want it to be concise and clear, don't we? And um, when I asked Katura to marry me, what she said was, "Of course," and it just left me hanging. Of course not. Of course, <laughs> you'll think about it. I wanted a yes, or, well, I wanted a yes, I didn't want to know, but I got, of course, I was like, of, of, of course you will. <laughs> I just hung there. And we want that clarity, don't we? Now, our third question today, we see another brilliant example of Jesus' question-answering skills, this time summarizing and clarifying the law, the whole law, into five words. 
So in, in uh, verse 28, we meet a scribe of the law. Now, uh, it's possible that he was sent there by a superior, but if we look at his actions, you know, he may have just been there that day. Because if you see what he does, if you look at the verbs in the sentence here, then we see that he came, he heard, he sees or notices how Jesus answers them in truth, and so then he asks his question. Now, if you could ask Jesus one question, I wonder what you'd ask him. Nicodemus and the rich young ruler both asked good questions, didn't they, of Jesus? So what does this scribe ask? Well, verse 28, uh, he says, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this man was an expert in the law. He would have had lots of knowledge, but he didn't understand what it was all about. He wanted some clarity. And in humility, the, the scribe asks Jesus, what really matters? What really matters with my time and life? What should I be spending my time doing? And the man would have known uh, the 248 positive commands of the law and also the 365 negative commands of the law. And he, he would have known every detail of those 613 commands. And he wants to know from Jesus, what does it all boil down to? What is most important to do? And again, Jesus answers in the way that would have struck a chord with his listeners as Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. These are verses that the scribe himself would have prayed three times a day. Jesus answered, verse 29, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus reminds the scribe the truth that God has revealed himself to be the only one true God before he tells him what is most important to do. Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So Jesus teaches here that there's one God, and we're to love him with everything. Now, it's, I mean, if you're married here today, you may think that having one spouse to please is, is um, hard enough, right? But just imagine if you had to split your love. So you had all these different spouses to love. You had one spouse, would you have one for each day of the week or would you have um, a spouse for holidays or one for having children with or one for running a business with? It would get pretty complicated if you started splitting your love, wouldn't it? By the way, don't mishear me here. I'm not saying go and have more than one spouse. I'm trying to say how difficult it would be to split your love in that way. Because as, if you're married, you've, you've said you're going to spend your life with this person. You're going to give the, your love to them. And then actually what you're doing is, oh, well, you know, I'll keep this back for myself or I'll give that to that other person or that other person. So the idea here of loving God is an exclusive love. One Lord, one love. It's a covenant like marriage. And that means we're not to withhold a single part of our lives back from God. Do not compartmentalize. But if that's, uh, but we know that that's not easy, don't we? There's always parts that we want to hold back for ourselves. Um, it takes work, it's a battle in each area um, with our human desires, just like it, it's, it's, it's difficult um, in, in other relationships as well. And it's, uh, it's a lifelong task. If there's anything or uh, anyone else in our life that we worship, then we'll end up dividing our love, just like the, the ridiculous um, 
concept of having a different spouses for different areas of our love. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So Jesus continues with his answer, verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So in putting these two together, Jesus is saying that our love for the Lord, for God, is expressed in how we love other people. And, but we're programmed to love ourselves first, aren't we? We, we need to be freed of that self-love so that we can love God first and then others. And in contrast to uh, the other set of questioners who find themselves trapped in their, uh, in their question, that Jesus actually um, shows this, uh, this scribe is rewarded by Jesus. After showing his understanding of what Jesus has taught, Jesus congratulates him that he's near the kingdom of God. Jesus gives the, the scribe a glimpse of freedom because he's, he's saying, yeah, you, you're on the right track. Keep following this truth that you're onto and you'll get there. Because basically, once Jesus fulfilled his mission of dying on the cross and, and uh, being resurrected, then you know that the guy's gonna see more of the truth. He already knows Jesus speaks truth. So once he sees that, he's already seeing the truth. And if he keeps going on that journey, he's going to see the full truth. So for the third time, Jesus' response raises questions for us, doesn't it? What can we be tempted to split our love between? What part of our life might we want to hold back from God? And here's another th thing to think about. Do we even know our neighbor's names? Do we know the struggles that they have? Do we know the needs of our neighbors? And let's just take a break from our neighbors. What about our brothers and sisters sitting around us in church today? Do we know their needs? Do we know their names? How would we like to be treated? And how would we um, want to be responded to? Um, and is that how we actually treat those around us? Are we loving them? as we love ourselves. So remember those five words that Jesus has clearly brought us to, love God and love your neighbor. And as I conclude today, uh, the three questions were asked of Jesus and in his three answers, uh, we're left with three questions to ponder ourselves. Do we pay what is owed to God? Do we pay what is owed to God? Do we let his revelation of who he is shape our worldview? And do we love God exclusively? Or is, is our heart split? Is our love split? So remember whose image you're made of and let that shape how you love and live as you uh, leave today. Jesus went all out to meet our needs and we, we love because he first loved us, don't we? So let's be people who go out of our way to meet the needs of others. Thank you. Let's pray.